Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Randy Franz as he shares this week's message. Well, hello. I am. Now, if I say that to you individually, you would look at me kind of weirdly. You might respond, okay, I am too. We're both here, now what? In this day, I am really doesn't mean much. It kind of seems like it should be followed by something else. I am going out to lunch. I am happy to, to meet you, happy to see you. Uh, or I'm late, that's what I say a lot. Or I am going to sleep now that Randy's beginning his sermon. In and of itself, that little phrase, I am, it alone holds very little significance in our culture today. But this morning, I want to show you how those three little letters, in that order, actually impact our lives greatly. And they are going to be the central piece in our passage today in the book of Mark, where we've been marching through Mark to the climax of Jesus' public ministry. He's taken his apostles through the Passover with the Last Supper. He's told them he is about to be betrayed by one of his own apostles. He's told them that they are going to scatter. They're going to leave him. They're just going to take off. Then he took them to the place called the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives to prepare to be arrested. So all through Mark, we've been leading up to this point in that garden. And it's a very familiar story. We know it but we're going to go through it. And so that brings us to our next section here in Mark 14, starting at verse 43 and going through verse 65. So I'm going to ask you to please open your Bibles to Mark 14 and follow along with me as I read aloud from God's Word. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Verse 51, And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. And they led Jesus to the high priest, And all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, 
and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, What further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, Prophesy! And the guards received him with blows. Let's pray. Dear Father, would you please open our ears this morning? Open our hearts, open our minds to receive the words that you have for us. Would you please help me to faithfully and accurately represent your word and help us to receive it again as you intended. We thank you for this time. We thank you for this morning. We thank you for being here with us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Jesus was in control. It may not seem like it. He's being carried away. But he knew he was about to be betrayed by one of his own apostles, and he allowed it because it had to take place. As foretold in Scripture in the Old Testament, God's plan would unfold exactly as God created it. We see in the Old Testament book of Zechariah, the prophet wrote, Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Direct reference to what's going on here in Mark. Now Judas had set up a system to give the Jewish authorities a sign, right, to identify Jesus. It was at nighttime. It's probably pretty dark, even though they had torches with them. It's not like the lights we have now. And so it could have been difficult for them to be 100% sure which one was Jesus. So he established a kiss as the sign. And that's such a sad thing when you think about it because it takes a sign of respect, a sign of love, friendship, and he's using it to commit what is arguably the most hideous act in human history. John MacArthur points out that of all the places to give a kiss of friendship, it could be the back of your hand or your forehead or even a kiss on the feet, Judas chose to kiss Jesus on the cheek. Only people who held close, personal, affectionate, loving relationships would greet each other with a kiss on the cheek. MacArthur says, Judas could not have chosen a more despicable way to identify Jesus because he perverted its usual meaning so treacherously and hypocritically. I think we would all understand that. In addition to that, Judas greets Jesus by saying rabbi or greetings rabbi. Rabbi is also rendered as my master, uh, a title of esteem and honor given by the Jews to a respected teacher. And it's a term Peter had earlier used toward Jesus during the transfiguration. In Matthew 
tells us Jesus responded to Judas by calling him friend. Stick with me, this gets a little bit technical. The usual Greek word for friend used in the New Testament was philos, connoting closeness and affection. But here, in this part of Mark, the Greek word is used heteros, which is merely an associate or a comrade, not nearly as close. Jesus actually used this word in parables to describe someone who had taken advantage of a privileged relationship. That certainly is what Judas did. So I want to set the scene a little bit here. In addition to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders, this crowd that came out to Jesus included a cohort of guards or soldiers. Now a cohort was 600 men. 600, along with the dozens that are included among the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And these 600 were most likely Jewish temple guards. It often is, is referred to as soldiers. Regardless, they were armed. So they were expecting probably some kind of opposition. Jesus pointed out in the passage, though, once again, how hypocritical the religious leaders were. Here they were with hundreds of guards, armed with clubs and swords, in the dark of night, outside of town, secretly arresting Jesus with no charge against him. It was as if they had found him in hiding and, and they needed to set up an ambush and do a nighttime raid. And in reality, Jesus was not hiding. He had been there. Everywhere he went, he was out in the open for almost three years. He even said to them, day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But now they have to come at him this way. So why did they? Why did they resort to such a clandestine, secret nighttime raid? Jesus tells us, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Yet again, the events unfolded exactly as told they would in the Old Testament. How often we see this and how much this should give us firm foundation that the New Testament, even written after Jesus, exactly is true, accurate, and trustworthy. For example, Daniel 9 gives the detailed timeline of when the Messiah would be crucified. We can look at Isaiah 53, which highlights the specific details of the Messiah's life and death, which we read earlier. We see, for example, in Psalms 41 and 55, how they refer to the betrayal. Let the scriptures be fulfilled. Friends, the word is truth. Christ is the word. We must know the word. We must know Christ. We must. The word pointed to a Messiah, a Christ, and Jesus fulfilled the word. In fact, the first words of the book of John are in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And a few verses later, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. 
We must know the word. We must know both the person and the written expression. The Bible is his chosen way to communicate with us personally, to show himself to us, to show us what is, what was, what is, and what is to come. It shows us evidence of God's plan, how he has dealt with people, and what is going to happen in the future. In fact, the Bible is the only book that dares to predict the future in perfect detail and has nailed it every time. And it continues to carry instructions for us about our present times and great details about what's to come, the future times. Do you know these instructions? The Apostle Paul says in Romans that people are without excuse for not knowing God. And that was simply by observing creation. How much more were without excuse when he, we have the written revelation of him? Are you going to despair over current events in our world? About what's going on? About the election coming up? Will you be led astray by false rulers and political leaders? By those who are, we know are coming in the future claiming to be the Messiah? Falsely. But they're, they're coming. All of these are explained in the Bible so we can be assured of God's sovereignty amidst troublesome times. So do not be fooled. Let us not be fooled. God has given us in his word everything we need to know, to live for him, to be at peace, to be fulfilled, and to bring glory to him. And he hasn't promised us an easy road, we know that, but it is the only truly satisfying road that results in glory and honor and peace and eternal rest with him. Now, I could make us all feel really guilty right now simply by asking how many of us know more about sports, celebrity gossip, TV shows, movies, uh, than Bible verses. Or how many hours we spend on the internet for personal reasons uh, compared with how many hours we read the Bible or read, say, biographies of, of Christians in the past or, or even uh, current believers and the great things they're doing. Or the time we spend in communion with our Lord, which we know is prayer. And that would convict us all and give us all a very heavy dose of guilt. So I won't mention those things. So let's move on. Verse 51 kind of sticks out here. If you're looking, looking in that passage, look at verse 51. It mentions a young man who followed Jesus and escaped being caught by the soldiers, and he ran away naked. Most commentators, most scholars believe it was Mark himself, the author of this gospel, but it appears nowhere else in the Bible, and the significance seems minor. So we're going to go on and come now to Mark's description of what we would title the most corrupt trial of all time. Jesus being hauled in front of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. Now, we just kind of are coming off, what was it, two and a half weeks of the Olympic Games. And during those games, men and women broke all kinds of records for amazing 
sporting feats of endurance and, and all kinds of sports endeavors. But I want to tell you, none of them will stand as long as Jesus' trial has stood as the most bogus, corrupt, illegal, misguided, trumped-up trial ever conducted. That, one's gonna, that record stands. That's set. That'll never be broken, even in our legal system. In fact, to call it a trial is actually suspect itself. It was more like a railroad job, a hatchet job of the first order. There was never any pretense of fairness or impartiality. They didn't want the truth or the facts. The religious leaders had one thing on their minds. That was to eliminate Jesus, Jesus' threat from their authority. And they were not going to let him get away due to something as inconvenient as facts. Now, if they had wanted fairness, they would have determined from all the changing stories, all the false witnesses that came forward with made-up charges, that there was not a shred of solid evidence to find him guilty of anything worth imprisonment, beating, or death. Not a thing. So in this so-called trial, uh, or more accurately, it's probably would more accurately be labeled a Jewish hearing uh, because there was another trial to come before the Roman, uh, the Roman trial. But, uh, but during this trial or hearing, I want to really zero in on the most poignant exchange. In many ways, it's the pinnacle of this story and certainly one of the high points of the entire gospel. And here's what took place. The Jewish high priest, whose name is Caiaphas at that time, after hearing a litany of conflicting stories by people claiming to be witnesses of Jesus' supposed wrongdoings, he gives Jesus a chance to respond. Now, throughout the entire charade, Jesus had been silent. We know that. He did not dignify these corrupt proceedings with a response. These, these corrupt accusations didn't even deserve Jesus' response, so he had stayed silent. Most men wouldn't be able to. But Caiaphas opens the door. He urges Jesus to answer these charges, yet Jesus would not. So at that point, Caiaphas, who really had been set up as the judge for these proceedings, he turns into the lead prosecutor. He had had enough of these poor testimonies that failed to bring solid evidence against Jesus. He was unable to fashion a charge that would really hold water in any way. Caiaphas was apparently getting irritated. You can understand that. These guys aren't doing the job. I'm just going to take it and do it myself. Therefore, he bypassed any more pretense, and he went straight to the issue at hand. Caiaphas directed the question for the ages. Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? In other words, will you, Jesus, go on record as saying you are the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Son of Man from Daniel 7, the Redeemer promised from Genesis 3, the very Son of God of Israel who shares exclusive honor with God Himself. Caiaphas is asking, are you saying that? 
Caiaphas would only even know that because that had been rumbling around. Others had been indicating that's what Jesus was saying. Well, if Jesus had done that, he instantly would have been guilty of breaking the Jewish law of blasphemy. A man claiming to be equal with God was considered such a grave offense to the Almighty, the Holy God, a crime so heinous that the only penalty was a death sentence. Death could be the only suitable penalty. So Caiaphas, almost in exasperated desperation, just spat the question into the air. Are you the Christ? I am. Jesus said it. I am. Those three little letters take up so little space on a written page. But they transcend all of the annals of history. In these three little letters, Jesus is clearly, forcefully, dramatically, unequivocally declaring that he is the promised Messiah. He is saying that he is God. Scholar R.T. France calls them words of defiant authority. And the people in that room at that time, they would have understood this very clearly. For Jesus earlier in his ministry had told his Jewish detractors, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. This was the same term God used in telling Moses, I am who I am in Exodus 3. Think of that. That's a title that God gave to himself. It's without limit or time. There's no constraints on that. It's past, present, future, all at the same time. That term, I am, it's eternal. It's always existing. There's no beginning or end, just I am. Nobody could claim that except God alone. And earlier in his ministry, Jesus had declared the I am, and it was so startling that those who heard it took it as the height of blasphemy, as a statement unworthy to be uttered by any mere human being, and so shamed the name of a holy God. When they heard it, their reaction was swift and extremely angry. At that time, earlier in his ministry, they immediately tried to kill Jesus by pelting him with rocks. Somehow Jesus escaped, but that was the reaction. That's how serious that term was. The book of Mark does not record any instances of Jesus uttering that term until now. But we do have in the other Gospels some more indications. And I'll just bring up two of them. From the book of John, Jesus said, if you knew me, you would know my father also. That's pretty clear. In John 10.30, he says, I and the Father are one. That's even clearer. There's no mistaking Jesus' claim there. The I am statement was so powerful, in fact, it literally moved men physically. It moved them. 
We see this in the Gospel of John, which records additional detail that Mark omits about the betrayal by Judas. As the religious leaders had approached him that night in the garden, Jesus asked them who they were seeking. Jesus, or they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I am he. The Bible says, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Hard to imagine two words having that much power. It moved them to fall. But when you think about it, falling to the ground is actually a common reaction to divine revelation, is it not? It was then, it is now, when, when we believe we are in the presence of God Almighty, the only instinctive response we have is to fall face down on our hands and knees in complete submission to Him. That makes sense. We know that today. They knew that then. It's a spontaneous act of awe and humility in the sudden presence of power. And this is demonstrated in the Bible. We have quite a few examples of that. We have Abraham, Ezekiel, uh, Moses, and Aaron, who all fell on their faces just to communicate with God. Others fell on their faces at the sight of an angel or with the passing glory of God. Caiaphas did not fall on his face in front of Jesus. Instead, once Jesus uttered that, he quickly charged him as being guilty of blasphemy, deserving to be executed. The whole Sanhedrin, that was their decision, have him executed. And isn't it interesting that at that point, the Sanhedrin were sitting in judgment on Jesus. And in the day when Jesus returns, he will pass final and irrevocable judgment on them. For Jesus did not stop at the I am statement. He went on to say to Caiaphas and all the Sanhedrin in the house, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. These are words pulled from the Old Testament, scriptures that the Sanhedrin knew very well from passages in Daniel 7 and Psalm 110, which are referencing the future Messiah. They also show Jesus looking beyond, beyond his crucifixion, beyond his burial, beyond even his resurrection. He is looking to the time when he is ascended to the throne of God, to the very right hand of God, where he sits now, and from where he is coming again to the earth to judge the nations in the last days. Behold, I am coming soon, he says in Revelation 22, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And Revelation 1.7 points to that very day that Jesus spoke of. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. That time is upon us now. The events preceding his second coming, foretold in the Bible, 
are in place. We can see little else that is predicted to happen before he comes. And yet no one knows exactly when that is. Is it today? Is it tomorrow? Is it next year? Is it 100 years from now? That's not given to us. So we had better be ready for today, because it may be today. We cannot wait. I will close with this from famed English pastor, preacher, and theologian Charles Spurgeon, who summed up beautifully how we are to respond to this passage in Mark during a sermon to his congregation. Spurgeon said, Now, friends, this morning, as truly as on that eventful occasion, you and I must range ourselves on one of two sides. Either this day we must cheerfully acknowledge his Godhead and accept him also as the Messiah, the Savior promised of old to us, or else we must take our post with those who are the adversaries of God and of his Christ. Will you ask yourself the question, on which side will you now stand? And then he added, I pray you do not think that Christ's deity needs any further proof than that which this one court gives. Jesus said, I am. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you for being in complete control now, just as you were then and always will be. Would you please guide us? Help us to know you, the living word. Help us to desire you above all other things. We thank you. We praise you. In your holy name, amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life. Thank you.